welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us yet again, or maybe that's presumptuous. Maybe this is your first time listening. And because we don't uh, presume uh, that you've heard of us before or know who we are as individuals, we take a little time each each uh, time we uh, put a show together to introduce ourselves. So I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, I uh, have been a, a real estate investor, commercial real estate. I've been a contractor. I've also taught philosophy at the uh, secondary level. Uh, did that for about a decade. And uh, I've written a few books. Uh, latest book is on Tom Bombadil in the House of Tom Bombadil. And I just got a contract to write a commentary on the Book of Acts. So podcast folks, you're going to be hearing me uh, drone on about the Book of Acts for the next two years. Anyway, that's enough about me. How about you, Glenn? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor, specialist in Renaissance and Reformation Europe. Uh, I am now a ministry associate with Reflections Ministries and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Great. Tom. Tom Price. I teach systematic theology and Christian ethics and philosophy. One of the places is Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Great. And we're pleased today to have a guest on the show, uh, someone who's a new friend, and uh, we're really eager to talk to him about a new book uh, that he's published. But uh, Jason, introduce yourself uh, for folks, please. Hi, everyone. Jason Baxter. I have taught for 12 years at Wyoming Catholic College. I got my degree, uh, undergraduate degree in classics at University of Dallas, and then went on to do Italian studies and medieval studies at University of Notre Dame, um, where I was disobeying my advisor's wishes and taking, I took a class on Meister Eckhart. He told me I should only take classes on Italian literature. And I snuck around his back and I got this class in Meister Eckhart and sort of late medieval mysticism. And then for me, my kind of intellectual path and career became clear to me. (laughs) I knew that Dante didn't know Meister Eckhart. Um, They, you know, but they were exact contemporaries, you know, across the Alps. Yeah. But I also felt that this this sort of long stream of Platonism, which kind of like one of those subterranean rivers in Wyoming, goes underground for a while, then reappears, you know, a half mile later. <laughs> that this was kind of explained the, the feeling of reading Eckhart and it also explained, you know, the feeling of reading Dante. So my career was at first devoted to trying to trace these subterranean rivers by which Platonism got to Dante, despite the fact that I hardly need to tell a bunch of uh uh, reformed uh, historians of Europe that, uh, you know, Plato comes back mainly with Ficino and the translations in the 15th century. But so my, my first half of my career has been sort of dedicated to that and, and um, dedicated to Dante. But in the meantime, I've always loved Lewis, loved him uh, since I was a teenager. I was a morally serious teenager. Um, I was probably better at 18 than I was at 38, but uh, <laughs> reading Lewis's sermons and reading Lewis's nonfiction uh, was always wonderful. And it wasn't until I was working on all my Dante projects that I realized that C.S. Lewis had got to these things before I did, hmm. with the huge difference that he was sitting around in Oxford uh, libraries and reading things which had been untranslated and in some cases unedited, sitting around reading these things in manuscript. And the things that I thought about my scholarly book, which were original, Lewis got there first. (laughs) And it sort of of enkindled and re-enkindled in me a youthful love and an admiration for uh, for this man who I'd feel like had 
probably like for so many of your listeners, you know, is to me what George McDonald was for him or what Virgil was for Dante. And I just conceived this great admiration for him all over again and uh, decided that I would see if I could just take note of some of these themes, some of these borrowing, some of these kind of, you know, secret subterranean <laughs> rivers which were feeding C.S. Lewis's uh, work in apologetics and imaginative fiction. And I found enough things that uh, I was able to make a book of it. And that's what we're here to talk about today in part. Right. It's a marvelous book. I just finished it. It's called The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis. How Great Books Shaped a Great Mind. It's got a fun cover, too. Yeah. Uh, oh, it's and, a glorious cover. <laughs> yeah. So um, it, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, C.S. Lewis has been very important for me and I think for many of our listeners. Uh, and there's some things that, that kind of go into that that are, I think, uh, worth reflecting on. And I think you you actually get at maybe without even knowing you're getting at so, you know, in the, in the Protestant world, uh, you know, uh, Lewis is huge, as you know. Um, he, you know, mere Christianity, miracles, um, surprised by joy, all of these uh, uh, great nonfiction and apologetic works. And then the, the fiction, of course, is great with, uh, you know, uh, screw tape letters and the Chronicles of Narnia and so forth. So everybody loves him. And many people within the Protestant world try to emulate or sort of copy, uh, you know, his, his project or sort of are inspired by his project and want to continue it, but they, they just can't seem to uh, <laughs> sort of work in the same spirit that he did. And, and their stuff doesn't come. Well, obviously he's a brilliant person or was a brilliant man. And um, you know, you've got to give uh, you know, you know, some acknowledgement to his genius and that the fact that we just all, all can't do that. Right. Something <laughs> but, irrepeatable, yes. <laughs> that's, right, that's right. But on the other hand, the people who even uh, attempt it uh, well uh, within a sort of theological framework they're, they're operating from don't have the magic. They don't have that special extra something. And I don't think that they have uh, any way to identify what they're, what, you know, is wrong. Uh, but I think your book helps to introduce people to a dimension of the sort of the inner life and intellectual world outlook of C.S. Lewis that perhaps folks uh, are unfamiliar with. Right. Yeah. You just make me think that um, it would be I could retitle it. It would be a very unsuccessful book. Uh, <laughs> how to become C.S. Lewis in 87 Difficult Steps. <laughs> uh, yeah. How to be C.S. Lewis after 35 years of arduous labor. Um, <laughs> I think that's kind of the, you know, <laughs> maybe we should just let the marketers choose the title. <laughs> that's you know, right. I, I think in, you're right. I think in, in some my ways, case, yeah. Uh, in my case, I got to Lewis through Tolkien. Yeah. Um, I, that, yeah. That, that was my route to even finding out, uh, I mean, even hearing his name. And wow. Tolkien, it's exactly the same thing. There are so many people who want to be the next Tolkien and every one of them fails largely for precisely the same reasons. Right. You know, they don't yeah. have the intellectual depth to have the vision that you need to pull off something like that. That's right. Yeah, yeah. you want to be the next Tolkien, you probably need to have, and I, maybe this is a way of thinking about the book, you want to be the next Tolkien, you need to have a bookshelf that looks like Tolkien's, yeah. right? which is going to be, you <laughs> yeah. know, like introduction to Gothic grammar and you know, <laughs> the, the Welsh verb and its complete system. And yeah. that's what your bookshelf will be, look like if you're, mm -hmm. if you're, if you're Tolkien, right? 
I guess analogously, I think you could think of this book is what did C.S. Lewis's nightstand look like? Yeah. And, and it's, it's Boethius and it's Augustine and it's Dante and it's Nicholas of Cusa and it's weirder stuff as Romain de la Rose. And as he announces in Out of the Silent Planet, it's also Bernard Silvestri's Cosmographia and it's Alan <laughs> of Leal. And it's, it's the weird stuff that if you go through, you know, the 1936 allegory of love with a highlighter and think, huh, that's a strange person and highlight that. Mm-hmm. Then you, and then go read that stuff. Then what you realize is that this had sort of penetrated Lewis's mind, Lewis's spirit, Lewis's heart more deeply than you might've thought. Yeah. A, a couple of points on that. Uh, but one would be, I think what, but I had a introduction to Lewis you know, as a, as a kid, this strange cartoon came on television, <laughs> The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And this is like the old yeah, yeah, 70s. Yeah, I watched that every Sunday at Sunday schools. Yeah, I know yeah, what you mean. And all, <laughs> this, this show was, of course, captivating. And I didn't really think about it much later. And I wasn't interested. I went to ch- church and my family was Christian. I wasn't interested really until the bigger issues started to face in life. But then I do remember reading Lewis's Christian and apologetic rights. One of the things I think, because I was, this was when I was kind of being discipled by sources. Um, I was cutting my teeth on these mainly because they were addressing big issues, but that's where I really felt that Lewis was introducing us to those writings through what he was saying. I think that opened my imagination, not to, not to follow this kind of narrow one dimensional kind of apologetic but something that was drawing off of riches of, of ancient wisdom, understanding sources, and showing how they all kind of found a unity in that in that Christian you know um, faith that he he took so so seriously. So when I saw, of course, your your work hitting starting with Boethius and all this, this was really bringing back all those things that I, I do remember Lewis's works kind of inspiring me to look into or at least get a feel for. Yeah, I love that. And I mean, I know, and I've had a, a similar experience, but maybe one of a sort of a little bit of a disappointment, knowing how much Lewis loved a figure like Boethius and reading Lewis's praise of Boethius as a teenager. I was excited to actually turn to Boethius in my 20s, completely disappointed with what I actually found. <laughs> and it wasn't until, wasn't until later that I read his Cambridge address, his inaugural Cambridge address in 1954, his De Descriptione Temporum, where he said that basically whether or not you like Boethius is a litmus test of which side of the great divide you were on <laughs> and that he himself had read those sorts of things so thoroughly and with so much sympathy and with such a sense of urgency that he'd become a naturalized citizen of the pre-modern world. Yeah. And that's when I knew I had some work to do, <laughs> yeah, you know, that, yeah. you know, and I think this is other, one of the other kind of neat things is that, it's not just sort of stuff and ideas and opinions, which Lewis maybe got from the medievals and then, you know, recycled and refreshed and reused, which I think he does that a lot. But it seems that even his very sense of vocation as an intellectual, um, that is what he even thinks it means to know something is, in, is informed by pre-modern habits. Yeah. That is, I think, in, in the modern world, and you know, I, I jokingly call myself a recovering, recovering Cartesian, <laughs> right? In the, in the modern world, we think to know is you know this fundamentally empirical and yeah. mathematical enterprise, yeah. and there are all these other sort of faculties that our ancestors would have considered knowledge, like love right. or beauty 
or even morality in some sense to be retuned with the cosmos such that such that some good actions come easily or naturally because of habit. Our ancestors, I think, would have been comfortable calling all these different species of knowledge, right? But not so for us. So I think, yeah. you know, I, I think reading Lewis, Lewis taught, you know, kind of helps me as a recovering Cartesian recall that one of the aspects of knowledge is 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 reading until your heart touches it, is reading it until in some sense you don't just know the ideas. You, not just that you can reconstruct the arguments and, and, and rehearse the facts, but until you've sort of seen the arguments from within, what the filmmakers call the point of view shot, or as I've been increasingly saying, partly because of Lewis and partly because of Dante, to know something means to have you've, you've worked through it so thoroughly that you feel it in your veins and in your pulses and in your nerves. That's knowledge. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think when, when I think the very aspect, I think that's what's so charming about Lewis's apologetics and his fiction, his imaginative writings, is that he's clearly trying to work head knowledge out into a heart knowledge or try to work that knowledge into the veins. Mm-hmm. So it's not just something that we know, but something we crave, something we love, something we're moved toward or something, or on the alternative, something we're repelled by or find sickly and pallid. I think I, in that way, I think Lewis not just recycling cool medieval ideas, but recovering a medieval sensibility about how we even define what it means to know something and hence lots of ramifications for the Christian life. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things that I've been talking about lately on, and with some groups that I, I'm with is um, where it talks about uh, the knowledge of God. Uh, what I do, the, the way I get to what that concept is, is I say, all right, think about King James. Adam knew his wife Eve, and yeah. she conceived, and they bore a son. Yes. Knowledge of a person implies intimacy. Yes. It, there's a relational component of it. And I think that using the word knowledge in our modern world hides that. Because we've got this, well, Cartesian understanding of what knowledge is. You know, so that, that would be one place where I would point out the ramifications of what you're saying. I think that, mm-hmm. that you know, the, the medieval concept really is essential if you're going to understand those passages about knowing God. Yeah, there's something embodied and, and tangible, haptic, palpable about a sense of knowledge, especially, say, you know, with with in relationships with other people. I think that's something that given our, you know, past couple of years and our, uh, our need and policies to social distance and wear masks is, is something that's going to take us a little bit, I think, to, to recover the ability to feel that, to, to sense that and, and recognize that all those, well, we're incarnational beings, aren't we? Yeah. Um, yeah. Micro incarnations. And I think right. recovering all that's going to be, a really important task for us, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, I'd like to go back to your, your thoughts here on Boethius a little bit, Jason, and, and the fact that, you know, in your book, you talk about Boethius as being a transitional figure. Um, you know, Constellation of Philosophy, great, significant work, influences the medieval world. But he was a man with, a, a, you know, a foot in two worlds. So he, his, you know, he had one foot in the classical world, and then another foot in what we've referred to now as the medieval world. And you, you note that Lewis understood himself in the same sense, that, that he was yes. a man with feet 
you know, uh, kind of in two worlds. He had yes. a foot in the medieval world and the foot in the modern world. Right. So he didn't necessarily, uh, you know, kind of go through life as an antiquarian, just kind of like, you know, dressing up, you know, uh, you know, LARPing, you know, live action role play <laughs> <laughs> kind of thing where he's pretending he's, you know, still, still, uh, you know, you know, uh, in the medieval world, he, he, he was able to relate to the modern world. He understood it. In fact, I think he understood the modern world better than, than modern people do precisely because he had a foot in the medieval world. He could had some yes. to contrast it with. And I think that's part of the problem that a lot of people have is, is they're thoroughly modern and they don't even know it. Um, yeah. you know, generally speaking as a pastor, when I preach, um, what you have is kind of the, the fish in the water phenomenon in which people, uh, are modern in their outlook, but they assume that everybody always thought this way. So yes. when you talk about, say, the way people looked at the world in you know antiquity in the New Testament, in the Book of Acts, for example, they're not actually looking at the world the way you are when you read the <laughs> Book of Acts. You know, right. <laughs> you, you're you're interpreting everything uh, in a way that a modern person would, a Cartesian a person who looks at surfaces and quantities but can't get beneath the surface, who assumes yes. that anything else is subjective. You know, and just uh, right. sort yeah. of private right. knowledge. So, yeah. uh, can you reflect a little bit uh, with us about Boethius and maybe, maybe why he might be uh, a key to understanding Lewis? Uh, you know, in, in important ways. Yeah, I mean, so do you read Lewis's sermons or lectures on how to do apologetics, and he uses this interesting term of barbarian. Mm-hmm which you think might just be a sort of one-off thing until you go and read Lewis's scholarly writings about Boethius who lived in the age of barbarians. Mm-hmm. And you start kind of connecting those dots and you realize, Oh my goodness, he is what he wrote, you know, what he's writing at a similar time of trying to quickly characterize the, this age of, uh, you know, the sixth century, the sort of collapse of ancient, philosophical knowledge and the sort of the wisdom of the ancient Mediterranean is reappears in his very description of what he calls the modern barbarian. He says at one point, uh, the modern democratic barbarian who is more satisfied with himself than any ancient aristocracy ever has been. That's a fascinating. That's great. That's great. (laughs) The modern barbarian he characterizes as the one, the basically, um, this is not entirely Lewis. This is a little bit my own language, but the tool using machine thinking, I guess you could say the modern barbarian, the one who spends so much time using tools and machines that he's, or she has failed to recognize the difference between an organic world, a spiritual world and the machines. Yeah. Anyway, so I mean, this is, but, but the chief characteristic according to Lewis is that the modern barbarian has willingly cut himself or herself off from the past. And this is the easiest thing to prove in the world. I mean, I teach at a great books college, right? That, you know, that reads more ancient books than modern books. Our students probably have to ask, answer at least seven times a week. What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that? This sort of in an iPhone, you know, 13 using society and, and electric cars and, and all these sort of things, right? Ancient wisdom seems sort of out of place. And Lewis, of course, in the 50s had, had already, you know, recognized that sort of strange out of placeness. So in that way, I think he sort of associates with the Boethius. 
maybe two other quick ways he associates with Boethius. One, what he loved about Boethius is that Boethius is a Greek reader. Uh, he might be, you know, the, the last Greek reader of the West. Uh, and yet Boethius has this, you know, this, this fabulously ambitious intellectual project in which he's going to translate all of Plato into Latin, then all of Aristotle, and then he's going to write a treatise on reconciling the liberal arts with theology and then reconciling Plato and Aristotle. That's, that's the grand treatise. <laughs> but like, of course, it gets type of mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or as I like to say, the, you know, the um, Raphael School of Athens, right? Yeah. Where you have mingled, mingled these wonderful philosophers from every philosophical tradition, but centered on the fruitful um, dialectic between Plato and Aristotle. Well, Boethius would have cut short all of that by a thousand years if he hadn't been imprisoned and had to write this sort of you know painful, <laughs> reduced treatise without a proper library. He even says that kind of snarkily to, to Lady Philosophy when she comes to visit him. This isn't, isn't exactly my library, is it, Lady Philosophy? <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for looking out for your own, right? So I think in that way, I think um, at one point, Lewis says Boethius was trying to write the sort of treatise which didn't emphasize the difference between all the ancient thinkers, but how much they had in common. In some ways, Boethius didn't have the luxury to, to go into the fine metaphysical distinctions between a Platonic and a Stoic and an Aristotelian ontology. He was just trying to, you know, like a man who, who's left in a museum that's burning and he's got one armload of stuff to grab. He's just sort of grabbing random precious things, save as much as he can without sitting there and making the fine critical distinctions. And so I think that really guides how Lewis felt about his own scholarship, right? And it's why I developed this term of the long Middle Ages, in which the Middle Ages means something from Gilgamesh in what, 2000 BC, <laughs> yeah. all the way up to Wordsworth in 1800 AD. I, no scholar would define the Middle Ages with such broad, encompassing terms. But I think when you think Boetheanly, if I can use an adverb of that variety, if you think with Boethius about Lewis's vocation, he's trying to save the stuff that they had in common. And it also is, explains why his brain wanders from St. Paul to Plato to Aristotle to, to Bishop Hooker in the 17th century. A little bit of George Herbert and then some Charles Williams thrown in, right? He's, what do they all have in common? In some sense, I don't know, maybe, maybe even anticipating in our day, I mean, here we are, you know, a, a people from different sort of denominational affiliations having a, com a common conversation about how many of the paintings we can save before the museum burns to ashes, right? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, I think Lewis felt like we had lost the, we had lost the, the luxurious privilege of the fine distinctions. And now we've got to talk about, for at least for a little while, what's in common. So, so Jason, would you say that mere Christianity is his modernization, maybe, of Boethius's mere philosophy? Yeah, I like that idea. Or at least um, doing a, a Boethian-type project. That's yeah, probably a better, better way of describing yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. I like that. I, I think that that rings true to me. It's it's interesting that you have what you have here with Lewis in particular, and and I think we've been hinting around at it um, from from some different, you know, I mean, different shows. I know for sure. But what you have is someone like you said that is very conscious that the issues he's dealing with in faith, faith, philosophy, morality, and and a whole host of other things are really 
concentrated that he was very aware that this is a distinction between a, a world that's, that's we've moved away from and a new one we've entered into. And in some way, there are so many things that the world that we moved away from actually held classic forms of Christianity together because they came, they grew, grew from it. And that was that, that was that common root. And so as Christianity starts to become re-filtered through the modern world, as it has, was already taking place, this is why he had really, I don't think a strong taste for, for, you know, uh, Bruner or Tillich or the like. Yeah. Um, he was actually right. one of these figures that now we would call almost like a retrieval thinker um, in, in the sense that that I mean, I, I've I've always seen a lot of the work that I do is is retrieving a lot of the riches we lost by becoming so committed to certain shifts and moves that have led to the modern world. So that Christianity, oftentimes when we talk of nature creation, we're thinking in such materialistic, naturalistic lines. And I think Lewis was was already onto this that you actually have a much richer, fuller vision when you've you've been studying ancient ways of understanding your relation to the cosmos, its order, its teleology, and all of the reflection that went into it, which had much more of a home in relationship to Christianity, especially as it worked through that stuff, than anything that came, like you said, after after these significant changes entered into the modern world. And so many of us weren't aware. I wasn't. When I started studying theology, I didn't realize how much of it I had interpreted through the assumptions that were very recent in terms of, of, of that history. And it's figures like Lewis that really opened my eyes to a much richer way of reading creation and the human being and, and our faculties that did more justice to the biblical picture and therefore was a better setting for it than this modern historic, you know, historic critical approach or naturalistic approach that has been replacing it. Anyway, that was a long... <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And I think, and it seems to me that the key term in, in Lewis's vocabulary, well, actually, I, I would say a, a set of terms, a whole kind of like, you know, semantic range is what he sometimes calls sacramentalism. Yeah. What he sometimes calls symbolism and what he uses in uh, what wins my uh, prestigious silver medal award for second best thing that Lewis ever wrote in his, tr he calls a transposition. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I like to use the, I like to use the term borrowing from uh, from Eastern Orthodox theology of iconic thinking. Yeah. Right? I mean, I think we probably a lot of your listeners have had the experience of sort of looking at an icon. Yeah. And when you go with it with sort of uh, Western Renaissance expectations and you look at it, it seems primitive, doesn't it? It seems like a failed work of art. And then when you begin to sort of recover what it's what it's meant to be, it's in some sense, it's meant to be plain on the surface because it's hoping to be a window, a gesture, a iconic, sacramental, symbolic thing, which sort of suggests that the holiness in another realm, which imperfectly expresses itself in this world, because this world, uh, I guess you could say, is sort of maxed out <laughs> when it tries to express um, when it tries to express the 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 purity and the essence of the, of the other world of the spiritual world. And I think this is something obviously that's, you know, uh, such a beautiful and edifying theme in, in the old Testament, right? Yeah. In Ezekiel two, uh, Ezekiel's just at his wits end to try to describe what he's seeing all these yeah. wheels within wheels or Isaiah six, right. In the trembling of the temple, he just, you know, or, you know, even on the sort of Mount Sinai moments, 
But in some sense, when, when the other world begins to break into this world, this world begins to sort of melt down and evaporate, right? Yeah. And I think if I, Lewis, I think, was, was, you know, deeply tuned into that. And in fact, you know, we've, we've mentioned already his, his Narnian books, right? The moments in which sort of uh, some of the encounters with Aslan come, the world gets kind of strange, right? You have, yeah. you have this irritated Tolkien, of course, right? But you have, you have Bacchus <laughs> showing up, leading these wild revelries, my read on that is that Christianity is is bigger, it's more joyful, it's more uh, understand what I mean by this more chaotic, chaotically exuberant mm-hmm. than we often like to feel. And Lewis does a great job of getting those kind of Isaiah six Ezekiel two moments in which the the amount of joy is causing things to go a little bit haywire <laughs> because we have too small of expectations, right? And this is a weight of glory, right? We're just like children who are prefer to play in with and mud in the slums because we can't imagine what a holiday by the sea is like. Yeah. 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 Some great thoughts. I was thinking as you were talking a little bit about that, you know, the next section in your book, you talk about the cathedral. Yeah. You know, the, you know, the sort of the, the cosmos and, and the understanding of the cosmos, uh, that, uh, was, uh, fairly common before, uh, you know, the modern you know, dawn of modernity, I'd like to get into that a little bit, but before I even get, you know, ask you to go, you know, see you go there. Um, it's interesting that for all of us, um, it sounds like our interest in these matters was facilitated or maybe our appetites were whetted uh, because of the, the, the beautiful or in, engaging fiction of the Inklings. I mean, Lord of the Rings, Chronicles of Narnia, etc. cetera. Uh, so it sounds like, and I think this is, the case that their project succeeded. They, 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 they didn't try to sell us Boethius. In other words, <laughs> they didn't say, hey, you what you need to do, what will change your life is, is reading Constellation Philosophy. Here you go, have some Boethius. Uh, how do you like that? No, what they did is they, they engaged in a somewhat, uh, the, you know, what you just described, transposition, you know, sort of this, um, you know, vast world that's be, not, uh, sort of accessible to most folks. And then they, they wrote children's stories and fantasy and that kind of stuff. And, and, and beneath the surface, and we kind of feel it, even though we can't identify it, we can feel there's something more here to the Lord of the Rings or to the magician's nephew than I find, uh, you know, in the typical book in the Christian bookstore that's got a, some Amish girl on the cover. <laughs> you know, there's something more going on. Uh, and, and I want to know what that something is. <laughs> and then you start, you just start to do the deep dive. And so, so you like, don't want to read my, my upcoming uh, Christian fiction novel about the girl and the horse and it's an Iowa and all that. <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe, maybe you're not. No, but, but you, you, you see what, so I'm getting at. So we get the sense that, okay, there's something more going on here. I'm just, I'm just kind of like, but that's the thing about it. The, the world that we live in is not just sort of the surfaces. Uh, there's stuff going on beneath the surface, not just in, you know, Lord of the Rings, but actually yeah. in our world, in the real world that we live in. That's right. Yeah. And I think, you know, Lewis, it, you know, writes about that and says, that's the funny thing is that these kinds of inclinations what Plato himself would have called eros, right? Which doesn't yeah. only pertain to the domain of relationships between men and women, but rather that's just a subcategory of an even bigger thing. 
but any sort of love which pulls, any sort of love which binds, any sort of love which produces this kind of like, you know, ennobling, uplifting, uh, you know, sense of inspiration, right? It, we tend to, as he writes about in, in Weight of Glory, we tend to think that these are misplaced emotions, and thus we feel kind of alien and exiles in the modern world that we're the weird ones who just need to finally conform, you know, read enough Sam Harris until we finally just say, you know what, <laughs> you're right, right? We just need to get with the times and, and donate to the United Nations, right? Which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing, of course. But I think... Um, I think those kinds of deeper poles, those kinds of um, that kind of hunger for for that heavenly bread, as the Gospels might put it, is something which which Tolkien and Lewis just do so brilliantly. And of course, they're con, you know convinced that that's what beauty is. Umberto Eco says that you should understand beauty in the Middle Ages as spiritual radioactivity. Mm. Right, it's this sort of releasing of gamma rays, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's the object seems to be vibrating with a higher level of energy, which it itself could contain. And right. thus, and thus, I, I jokingly call um, the cathedral um, the medieval world's particle accelerator. Right. That just as our particle accelerators, right, we spend so much money on these things like in Switzerland and CERN. And they're so interesting and they're so fascinating. And um, like we're, they want to build one now, which is what, 100 kilometers in a, in a, in a circle. It's going to be massive. It's going to require international collaboration uh, in order to get these protons accelerating it. What, I think my buddy who's a particle physicist said 40 million times per second around these huge tracks. So that we can smash two protons into each other so that for a millionth of a second, we reduce these things to this miasmic field of pure energy, right? Which we think might be the thing itself. Right? <laughs> it's the deepest sort of level of reality. And, but if you think about it, it's kind, of, it's kind of sacramental in a way, right? It's kind of symbolic that, yeah. if, you know, flesh and quantity of these protons and electrons in their orbits are really just sort of translations for our mental minds of this elusive thing, which is deeper. Yeah. I think the medievals felt like that when they built their cathedrals. Yeah. And that's a cathedral should be thought of more as a kind of an experiment, a particle accelerator in the 12th and 13th century, Hmm. which briefly gets this deeper thing, this thing itself to half reveal itself obliquely through the corner of your eye. And I just, I just want to read a really brief passage from the book about this. I suppose if you keep me on the show long enough, I'll claim that multiple passages are my favorite passage. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay passage. to have a lot of favorite passages. <laughs> oh, good. Yeah, yeah. It might be a logical contradiction, but it's uh, yeah, understandable from the, from the enthusiasm. Yeah. Standing in a medieval cathedral gives you a kind of X-ray vision of the world. Meaning is everywhere, full and rich. The material world has been gathered to a saturation point. In a cathedral, then, the spiritual world feels like it's leaking in, and our response is to want to soar up and through and out. Simply look up any of the black and white photographs of Salisbury Cathedral, and you'll see what I mean. Yeah. So just to try to bring a lot of complicated themes together, if that's more or less an Old Testament description 
our Isaiah 6 moment. <laughs> Watching a series of, uh, of lectures by R.C. Sproul as a teenager has burned Isaiah 6 indelibly into my mind. I don't think I talk without trying to say something about that. So everything I'm saying, I think, is just a plagiarism of, uh, of R.C. Sproul's uh, sermon. <laughs> It's a great sermon. The, the holy, good, the holy, really like holy, holy sermon, right? Yeah. That's, right, that's, right. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, so if, there, if that sort of sense of too much, too good, oh Lord, um, in which we have to repetitively say, Lord, you are holy. No, 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 holy. No, no, you are holy. And repeating ourselves in these sort of, you know, triadic ways just to both affirm, but also while feeling the very inadequacy of our language. Well, you take that Old Testament thought and you combine it with that Greek sense of order, right? That Greek sense of logos with which John uh, seems to be beginning with in John 1, right? Trying to speak to his contemporaries by beginning with this sense of the cosmic logos and order. And you sort of put those two things together and heat it up enough so that they fuse. You got yourself the Middle Ages, Mm-hmm. That is the, the Old Testament experience sort of leaking in the spiritual radioactivity in our very experience of the natural order. Yeah. That, I think, is, is what Lewis himself is trying to capture. And that, I think, uh, CR, is what you were talking about in the literature of Tolkien and the literature of Lewis. What they're trying to put their finger on as well is recovering an alternative approach to the natural world. Yeah, and yeah. I think yeah. I think one of the things you see especially, I mean, Really, as as the church sets out into the Hellenic world, if you will, you it, you know the way the way post Harnack interpreted that is that this was just this huge distortion of this simple gospel that we need to return to, and so many even evangelicals have run with that without knowing where that's coming from. Um, when really, what you have is something that's the exact opposite of that. It's it's the fact that as as the gospel un, begins to unpack itself in this environment, it starts to find you know echoes within the philosophical world, the the myths, the stories, creation, and things hinting towards, and a vocabulary that will help actually unpack these metaphysical dimensions of of biblical revelation. And uh, their, you know, and their ontology in ways that just the biblical language itself is going to give you the, the the heart of it, but that that helps to flesh it out. And so when you get to the debates on the incarnation, for example, you you see the way the theologians were taking classical ways of talking about metaphysics and altering them to make you know make the the biblical picture kind of bring itself to its its you know to to heighten that mystery, but also communicate it. Um, you see that carried through and developed, I think, in its, in its deepest ways, also in directions that will lead to problems later. But that's what the medieval period was, was building on, all that richness that, you know, when you're talking about, for example, you know, material, materialism was a very thin and... Uh, it wasn't something that would have been very favorable to any of that world because it was seen as the least kind of reality, right? Um, and, and it was it was the fact yeah. that the material yeah. was was you know wasn't the source of itself that it, that it that it it, it yeah, you right. know it's being held yes. in being, <laughs> and uh, and because of yeah, that there yeah. is being. And then when you get into that, you start to realize how connected the material and the spiritual yeah. are, and and how meaning is so related to their relationship that you have the cathedral, you have the imagination of right. this world. 
Right. Yeah. 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 To, to create this this image of something which is super saturated, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I heard Paul Gerth speak once who described uh, Jean Luc Marion's theology as holding a crystal up to the light and slowly turning it to consider all of its prismatic angles. <laughs> And yeah, I just think, Tom, when you're sort of describing the sort of the, the message of Christianity sort of coming into history and being able to take unto itself these, uh, these absorb into itself different myths and different sort of philosophical vocabularies, provided that we don't get to the point where we forget yeah. <laughs> that, you know, that we're speaking in likenesses. That's we're right. We're speaking in analogies, right? We're speaking in that sense. So I think that's what Lewis and Tolkien meant by myth, Right. Yeah, convenient ways, which which ex- one of the ways you could express the truth. But if the truth is this sort of you know super sensible, super saturated realities, then it might be able to express itself in at least three different myths. Yeah, or maybe even four. Yeah, yeah, or five. I suppose we could have a fun conversation about how many sort of it could take into itself. But yeah, uh, but yeah, in that sense, if I'm tracking what you're saying. Yeah. yeah, what what okay. I'm struck by here is the connection between a fourfold exegesis of Scripture and maybe a fourfold exegesis of the world. You know, that just like Scripture has a literal meaning, and that's frankly, to a medieval mind, that's sort of the least interesting because it's kind of obvious. Um, there are depths of meaning in Scripture that go way beyond just the literal and the same thing then is also true of the the world around us. There is the the materialist way of looking at the world, and that's got its validity, but it's the least interesting. Yeah, Flannery and, O'Connor uh, Flannery O'Connor uses the same approach, Glenn, when she talks about using that approach to the creation uh, as we use with Scripture. Yeah. yeah, and that gets back to what you said earlier about the about knowing being a multifaceted, multidimensional thing. Yes, I, I, yeah, I kind of want to say a hundred different things in response to that, Glenn. Uh, but I think you're right. It's, and it seems a couple of things. I agree with you that in some sense we've orphaned ourselves from the past by adopting exclusively the literal, exclusively the literal interpretation of Scripture, and exclusively a literal appro- approach to the natural world. That is, we describe it in terms of its analytical components, right? Methodologically, this is what someone like, you know, like Boyle in the 17th century describes is the new program. It seems on a grand scheme of things, though, that it, that might, if our age could do that and do that well, which is what we do, and not orphan itself from the past, then in some sense, that would be our contribution to the great sort of dialogue of the ages. Yeah. To take to take my own emotions, to take my own psychology, to take my own interiority and subjectivity seriously without necessarily orphaning it, like I think we, you know, we sort of do in a contemporary culture from right. other concerns as well. Yeah. yeah. Then I think that, you know, if that's our contribution, right? To, and then to, and I think Lewis is sort of feels this way about our science. He's, he's a little, uh, he's a little cautious, you know, he's a medieval literature guy. He's a little cautious to talk about contemporary science, but in my chapter, I try to deal with that is that and yet he's got this kind of this exciting hope that if we remain excellent at doing our contemporary science and we give an even bigger picture than our ancestors could have conceived of, and if we don't isolate ourselves from the past, 
then we might have a neat rapprochement moment between the theological, the humanistic, and the scientific, in which we realize that the literal has just given us a better capacity to tell the old story. Yeah, that's a, a marvelous way of thinking about it. You know, we're reformed, and so consequently, we are really big on providence. <laughs> you know, what is what is going on here? Is this is this just sort of like a mistake, or have we gotten into a cul-de-sac that we're only going to have to get out of by going back the way we came, or is there another way out? Um, and you know, we've talked a little bit about Owen Barfield. I think he tried yeah. to move us in that direction a bit. Tried to That's say, right. okay, what are the things that we know now that our ancestors didn't know that maybe help us. Uh, along that. But I think that's a great way to, to think, you know, I think about, you know, what are the contributions that, that the Reformed uh, make to the larger church because of the things that we emphasize? One is, I think, covenant, uh, covenantal theology is is, re, is, a, is, is a really important thing. But I also think this uh, notion that, uh, you know, God is in control, even though from the standpoint of the situation on the ground, we have zero idea what's going on, <laughs> you know, and, and what we might find is, you know, is in a, in a, is in a hundred years or a thousand years, what you just described has occurred. And they think of us as the ancients who have this, have contributed this one thread to this larger tapestry that is invaluable. And, and we just can't really appreciate it yet because we don't have the kind of distance to understand how it relates to the other stuff. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And just, I mean, I love what you say about that. And just thinking of Barfield saying, we have to go through modernity, not back from. Yeah. And, you know, I think in some sense, if we're, if we're faithful and don't, uh, <laughs> don't tell lies, don't tell lies to ourselves. And in some sense, can always um, can 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 remember what the scientific method is—an intentional bracketing of certain types of questions yep. in a way that doesn't become our ontology, um, right? In a way that we don't think that well, just because I've chosen not to ask these questions means these realities to which they pertain don't exist. In other words, if we could be good scientists. Yeah. And I think it's someone like Boz van Frozen, right, talking about empiricism and what empiricism could be if we just remembered the limitations of the scientific method. I think some exciting things could happen. And that's yeah. what I half-jokingly yeah. call nostalgia for the future. Because yeah, yeah. we wouldn't have to practice the virtue of hope. Yeah, yeah that's, that's great. Let me, let, me, let me just sort of pause here and just reflect a little bit on what you said and maybe develop it a little bit in, in a way that maybe you haven't thought about. But I, I think that's right. You know, when I, I've got many friends uh, who are world-class scientists and, and in their daily lives, they don't behave the way they behave in a lab, thankfully. <laughs> they go home and they, they tell their wives, I love you. They raise their kids, you know, in the faith. And then they go, <laughs> or they, but then they go to, to work and they try to explain everything that they're say, seeing in the human brain as just biochemistry. In other words, you know, so it's almost as though they've entered into like a, 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 a game like basketball, like, you know, in a basketball game, people run around and stand in front of each other and wave their arms. Uh, they take a, a spherical object and they throw it through a hoop. They do all these different things. And it's and when you're in the when you're in the field of play, it makes sense. Yes. 
but then you leave. <laughs> you go back to regular life. And that's what science does for us. You know, when we enter into this, this purely sort of uh, physical world of uh, sort of understanding how these things work together, we're, we're doing something like basketball. Yeah. Yes. Or well, I was even just thinking, too, of ballet, right? I mean, the, you know, the, the ballerina trains herself, ballerino trains himself to have these certain types of formal motions, right? So that you could reduce all of your natural motions to these kind of artistically controlled, precise, figured ones, right? I think what you're saying is that if we could just sort of extend the analogy, the scientist who forgets the scientific method is this, you know, these sort of method of controlled steps would be yeah. like the ballerina who after the performance leaves the stage and walks into a Whole Foods, right? With this you know, similar kind of pirouettes, right? You know, this is a reduction for a purpose, yeah. Of the of the rich and difficult, you know, diffusive range yeah. of possible motions. Yeah, yeah, that's and great. I, I that's think great. one of the things you see is that the, I mean, with in particular with the scientific method is is like you just said when when it is de it is dealing with dimensions of reality that are real and a gift, right? I mean, they're they're real and a gift, and the advantages of doing that have been manifold. So I, I think this kind of anti-scientism that kind of sometimes will develop the, you know, kind of people longing for a kind of pre-modern purity. I mean, we see it even in the faith. If I could just get back to this point of the 16th century, this point, somehow I, I've got a hold of, or or even the the, the early you know Protestant desire to get back to the primitive, um, uh, you know, yes. church untouched yeah. by by its its being brought into it. But I think that yeah, right. I think there's always a temptation, you know, in in places, you know, in fields for people for whom faith doesn't consider to take what is right before them and the gains that are there and see that as, as really the explanation of everything. And you see the Dan Dennett's and the Dawkins. I mean, again, uh, such a mis at, at the end, there's one side to the science that can be very beautiful, but then, then when it gets brought okay. out into those dimensions, yeah. you see how, how much poverty it has when it tries to become an explanation for everything. And, uh, right. and I think Lewis was very bold at his time and Tolkien and this group because they were speaking into a world where scientism was increasing and to come out in the areas, um, come out in the arena that they were in Oxford and places like that and speak the way they did, they did risk being yes. considered dinosaurs and uh, outmoded yes. and, and they didn't care. They knew there was something rich here that was not reducible to, to what could be put in a test tube. And and you know calculated, yeah, exactly. measured, and and predicted. But yeah, they they. I mean, I even remember Karl Barth, who was no friend to certain types of modernity. But he said, "Look, you can't escape being a modern, being alive now. That's going to be in the work you do. Um, the question is, is that is that the only thing you're seeing? And uh, and he wanted to kind right. of retrieve, you know, traditions of understanding and and the scriptural vision in ways to to make us see better. Yes, and I just, I mean, thinking of Bart, how much time he spends with the notion of, uh, of time and eternity. Yes. He's uh, yeah. uh, uh, an 80-page commentary on three pages of Boethius. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I think, and much needed, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm struck by uh, the analogy of uh, taking your sport and trying to transport it into other areas as an analogy for what goes on with science. One of the things that 
that came to mind immediately is um, that's almost a trope that's used in advertising with football players. Yeah, it is. Office linebacker. Yeah. So you know, you you um, you you don't you don't make the right decision in terms of which broker you use, and the linebacker comes and runs you over. Right? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's it's you know, it and people laugh at it, and it's silly, but it's actually a great analogy to what happens when uh, Dawkins or any of these other guys are going out of their lane. Right. Yeah. Or, or I mean, I think maybe in a slightly different domain, just the the level of mediation that our technological devices have put between us and, and reality. Steve Shapin, the the Harvard uh, historian of, of science, says that the greatest invention of the Middle Ages was the clock, hmm. um, and in part because it allowed for the scientific revolution to happen, because now you could have precise measurements. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you begin to look at the world through the lens of a clock and through the world of machine, in some sense, it, it limits the domains of the types of question you're asking the world. Yeah. Such that if you, every single question you ask of the world is a machine question, the world gives a machine response because the domain of yeah. possible questions has already been limited and thus also the range. Yeah. It seems like, you know, fast forward now and the way that we interact with each other. So uh, the way that we interact with the world, the way we think about information, you know, even in maybe, you know, maybe preaching or even teaching, right, is downloading kilobytes. The sort of level to which our own expectations of machine expectations have penetrated our psychology, um, I, I think is something that Lewis was, was just beginning to, you mm. know, to, get, to get a whiff of, right? And that Deborah Lupton calls us data selves. Mm-hmm. That our kind of our our how do we put this? Taylor uses this term of our cosmic imaginary, how we think of the world and what it has to reflect on me. But maybe we could say our psychological imaginary of what I think of myself in terms of hopes, dreams, desires, life outcomes, life expectations. I'm actually working on a piece right now which analyzes. Mark Zuckerberg's open letter to his daughter, Max. Oh, wow. And just stopping right there, he named his daughter Max. Yeah, yeah. She's a maximum. She's going to be a life function which will maximize resources, will have maximal resources and thus maximal outcomes. She's, mm. she's Max. I think that's a sort of fascinating way in which what you were saying, Glenn, these sort of uh, cultural metaphors that we laugh at, these kind of cliches, but at a certain point becomes so much a part of our self-identities that even (laughs) as soon as we begin to talk about what a flourishing life looks like, it begins to come out in this kind of, you know, language of economics and machine learning and sort of function maximizing language, which our very vocabulary can conceal from ourselves these other types of longings and inspirations and what we began earlier talking about that platonic eros. Yeah. Yeah, One of the things that, you know, I'm a preacher. I I get up in front of people every week and expound and uh, try to help folks uh, see what or hear what God has to say to them. Uh, In a, I I belong to, I'm a, you know, I have uh, many other pastors that I know and, and I'm aware of the trends in homiletics and things. Uh, and the, the the approach to language that preachers today uh, more or less uh, fall into without even thinking is a very, I guess, instrumentalist way of thinking. And then there's also a kind of a, 
or speaking. And then when we, when they, when they do it, uh, sort of reach for a metaphor, they, they use mechanical, uh, term terminology without even realizing what they're doing. And some of these folks, you know, they'll say, you need to plug into the, into the Holy spirit or plug into the Bible or something like that. Yeah. And, and, uh, and some of these guys will be the most sort of censorious, <laughs> when it yeah, comes yeah, to anything yeah. that they can't find in the Bible in any other place, but the, the, they're they're with, with thoughtlessly uh, employing these metaphors that are yeah. drawn from a you know a very shallow surface understanding of the world. Yeah, and functionalist. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How, how would how, how would you translate the plugging in metaphor into the world of the the ancient Mediterranean scripture? That's a, yeah. that's an exciting thing. To, to, to even think through. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it screens out uh, certain things and then maybe uh, the things that it even gets, you know, into it's doing so yeah. in a way that kind of uh, alters and uh, uh, deforms. The answer is I am the vine. You are the branches. <laughs> right. Or the, the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two edged sword dividing to joints and marrow. Yeah. If you limit yourself, you know, to scripture, those, scripture. those are the metaphors that they use. Yeah. And, and if you stick with those, you're great. Uh, I'm just thinking about the guy who's trying to be hip and cool and, and relate to people. Sure, yeah. <laughs> but the, lang the language of cutting, the language of burning, the language of growing and I think, incidentally, this might be related to what Lewis says about why he admired Dante so much, is that Dante uses not just these, these metaphors, which I think are sort of faithful to this long Middle Ages, right, from the biblical world through, you know, up until the, the beginnings of modernity, but that Dante himself needs to use needs to use these metaphors sometimes to correct one another. Yeah. Such that the, the movement of God is, is a cutting, is a burning, but also a growing simultaneously. Yeah. Such that we both get a little bit closer to it without sort of reducing it, as you were saying, CR, to these mechanical metaphors. We can both yeah. sort of explain it and protect its mysteriousness simultaneously. That's, yeah, that's the manifold nature of scripture that we that we have to mix our metaphors. Well, <laughs> in, in other words, uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's interesting. I, I remember uh, when I was uh, taking a class under the late uh, Nicholas Lash from Cambridge, and I remember his little book on the Trinity had come out at the time. He was using that same thing for the way in which we use Father, Son, and Spirit. The the, the continuous qualification of, of the, the terms that we're using so that we don't create, reify this in a, in a creaturely idolatrous way. Mm -hmm. um, and he, he, I think he's capturing, again, this, this older way language worked and function in an analogous atmosphere in which we, we aren't talking univocity. And then when we're referencing mm -hmm. God, we're naming God from the creaturely things, none of which is able to bear that weight but each of which refracts something of that, that, the light of its creator. And because of that, language does need this constant interplay and qualification um, to, to be referencing without kind of, uh, you know, uh, turning into an idol. Um, and I think that robust sense of language, even when you deal, like, I think one of the great losses that we're dealing with culturally is what it means to be, in a full sense of the word, a human being. Um, like you said, these the, the social imaginary and the, the, the kind of um, 
the, the kind of reducing the human to the kind of psychological inner life only, or 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 you know, um, at the, in this conflict with the body, um, where where the, that rich kind of language that was analogous and not univocal, and that actually was much more holistic and not reductionistic, allowed for talking about these different dimensions, but in a way that harmonized and ordered them towards, you know, the high, you know, the truth, beauty, and goodness in the right kind of way. And because there yeah. is this underpinning of creation as oriented towards its creator, even in its rebellion, right? And so the loves and the longings um, although they're attaching to creaturely things the wrong way, once purified, can actually find their home in God again. And this is exactly what's cut off. And so the church is not drawing off of any of that and is having to fill it in many times in the contemporary setting with something that is, is so broken and reductionistic. It, it, it is communicating far less than, than, uh, than just you know, small senses of words and terms used in the medieval or ancient or the biblical times. Yeah, we're coming I think to if I could do this once a week with you guys for the next 40 years, I would be a better person. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've we've enjoyed talking to you, Jason. This has been a lot of fun, and we should probably wrap things up here. But uh, we want to give you an opportunity to tell us a few things. One of those things is, you know, how do people uh, find the book, buy the book? Uh, you know, what other things are you working on that you want us to know about? Uh, is there like a, a website that you've got? Sure. Uh, fill us in. Yes. Um, my, I do have a website, um, which I've collected, uh, my different books and, um, your, your listeners might be interested and your viewers might be interested to know that at Jason M Baxter.com, Jason M Baxter.com. I jokingly say that for those who want to go vinyl or who shop indie, you could just, um, you could just buy, you can buy a copy of my book off my website. I'll sign it and I'll send it out. Oh, nice. I'll, even, I'll even wrap it in one of my discarded lectures for my students. Uh, <laughs> something incoherent to keep it safe. Um, and I understand that trillionaires need to eat too, but just in case you want to support uh, a local guy in Wyoming, jasonmbaxter.com, I'll sign those books and send them out. And I have some of my popular articles there as well, uh, just collated. I, I like to write about the arts. I like to write about technology. But I like to stage moments in which uh, a modern experience could be brought into fruitful dialogue with an ancient text. And so I've got a piece on uh, the burning of Notre Dame de Paris, as well as the discussions around it initiated by Macron a couple years ago about how it should look. And I give Macron some valuable advice. And <laughs> he, he keeps texting me ever since I wrote that. It's getting really, really annoying. Um, but I've got some other piece, pieces too about, um, you know, uh, being in Iceland and failing to look at a waterfall because people are taking so many selfies of them, themselves, right? So I've got some pieces which I try to, you know, do put together some some contemporary experiences with some with some ancient literature or uh, pre-modern art and so forth. As far as projects coming up, I'm, I have contracts right now to, to translate the Divine Comedy. So the Inferno, and my translation of the Inferno with the new theologically driven commentary should be out in 2023 of Dante's Inferno, and then Purgatorio 2024, Paradiso in 2025. So I'm working on that. Um, I'm, and then I'm, I'm, I'm contemplating whether I want to write a novel, um, which I've, I've got an idea in my, in my mind, or if, if I'll do another nonfiction book. 
Um, and I'm interested in Owen Barfield, and I'm also interested in Fyodor Dostoevsky. Hmm. Um, so those are those are all sort of things that are in the works. But right now, it's a little bit more Dante before before we go either to the 19th or 20th hmm. century. Oh, great stuff. Well, Jason, thank you for giving us your time. And we encourage folks uh, out there in podcast land to get a copy of your book. Once again, uh, The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis. And if you want a signed copy of this, go to Jason's website. And that's great. Yeah, we, you know, sometimes I wake up at night worried about, you know, whether or not the folks that own Amazon will keep eating. But uh, we need to think about... You know, uh, just other people every once in a while, too. And so it'd be great for folks to just buy the book directly from you. Anyway, uh, well, thanks again for listening to the Theology Podcast. And uh, we've got more uh, shows planned that are going to be a lot of fun. And we look forward to having you with us down the road. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.